we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And today we're going to be talking about the recently completed term of the Supreme Court. There were a lot of decisions, of course, that related to a whole variety of issues. You would have seen decisions about affirmative action and other issues. But this being an immigration podcast, we're going to talk about the immigration decisions that came down from the Supreme Court, one major one and some others as well. And we have people who are uniquely qualified to talk about this issue. Our guest in studio is Hans von Spakovsky, an analyst at Heritage Foundation, former Justice Department official who has been following the results of the Supreme Court's term and writing and talking about them extensively. And we're also joined by Art Arthur. Andrew Arthur is the way you'll see his name written out, Center for Immigration Studies analyst who has also written about the uh, Supreme Court decisions that came down. So Hans, we'll start with you. What is the most important Supreme Court ruling that came out in this term and what are some of the implications of it? I tell you, I think the most important one from the standpoint of public safety is a case called U.S. v. Texas. Texas and Louisiana sued the administration after the Department of Homeland Security issued a new policy on the pickup and uh, deporting of aliens. Right. In essence, you know, there's a federal statute that lays out who has to be detained and deported. One of the statutes talks about individuals who a final deportation order has been issued by an immigration judge. They have to be picked up. They have to be deported. But the second one that's even more important is a statute that lists a whole series of specific crimes, you know, everything from murder, rape, assault, that says if an alien is convicted of any of these crimes, they have to be detained and deported. Right. And unfortunately, the Biden administration, they came in, they issued a new policy guidance saying, well, we're going to pick up suspected terrorists, that's also on the list, suspected terrorists and dangerous criminals, but only those criminals who we, at our, uh, using our discretion, think are dangerous. So the law says they have to detain these people, right. and they've just said, yeah, well, maybe not. Yeah, they said basically we'll decide under the totality of the circumstances whether this criminal is really dangerous. And right. you know, Texas and Louisiana suit said, look, you, you can't do that. You don't have any discretion. You've got to follow the statute. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court issued a decision saying that the states didn't have standing to bring this claim. Mm-hmm. Your standing, you know, is is the Supreme Court concept that you have to show a concrete injury. And the justices, unfortunately, said you don't have standing. Now, Justice Alito disagreed. He filed a, I think, a very strong dissent. One I agree with, in which he said, "Look, 
these states are suffering injuries. Their residents are suffering injuries by DHS allowing these dangerous criminal aliens out on the street instead of removing them. And I think he had the better of the argument, but unfortunately, the majority said, nope, they can't bring it. Now, keep in mind, they weren't ruling on the merits of the claim. They weren't saying that what the administration is doing is okay, simply that these states didn't have a right to contest the issue. Interesting. And so the point of standing just for you know, we're marinated in this to some degree here. But right. what it means is you're allowed to bring a lawsuit, basically. Exactly. Because if you're just a random third party who has nothing to do with what's going on, you're not allowed to file a lawsuit against somebody. Right. Because you haven't been the one, you weren't the one who was injured. That's right. So that's the issue. Yeah. And I think what the majority missed is that state governments have long been considered to have the ability to sue on behalf of their residents. And it's their residents, you know, it's called uh, local parentis is the, the legal term for it. Look, it's their residents that are being injured by this. Interesting. You know, Texas uh, Department of Public Safety actually, one of the few states that, as you know, puts out a report on the illegal aliens who have committed crimes in Texas. And the number is staggering. And again, it's everything from murders to rapes to, to kidnapping. So- People are being injured and victimized by a policy like this. Right. So, Art, I want to bring you in here. I thought that an earlier Supreme Court decision actually opened the door to states filing suit, one that the states lost, I think, on the merits. You can clear this up. This was during the Trump administration, but nonetheless, that kind of opened the door to states having standing to sue in immigration matters. Am I uh, mistaken about that? Yeah, no, there are uh, a number of instances in which the Supreme Court has allowed states to, you know, sue in order, particularly during the Trump administration, in order to vindicate or protect the rights of their citizens. One of those was uh, Regents versus DHS, which was the DACA case. Now, that was Regents of the University of California, but in this case, the University of California and California are virtually indistinguishable. And in that case, they found that the University of California had standing in order to sue on behalf of the students at the university who would be adversely affected by the termination of Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA. So they did find that. And also, it's important to note that in Texas versus Biden, which is a case that the state of Texas lost, in which Texas and Missouri were suing to force the Biden administration to reinstate the Migrant Protection Protocols, also known as remain in Mexico, they actually decided that on procedural grounds, but didn't find that the state of Texas and the state of Missouri didn't have standing in order to try to force that issue. So the the case law is a bit uneven there. And of course, you know, Hans and I can discuss Massachusetts versus EPA and a number of environmental challenges that have been filed by states on behalf of their citizens. So, you know, this is a little bit screwy and, you know, In that, I think that probably Justice Gorsuch had the better of the argument. He filed a concurrence in which he said, look, you know, the issue isn't really so much standing. The issue is really redressability. We've never recognized the right of any third party to sue in federal court in order to have, you know, enforcement action, be it criminal or immigration, taken against a third person. That's really what this comes down to. And you and I have both written, in fact, I think you and I and Hodds have all written about the fact that, you know, really the problem with the lawsuit 
in this instance, and this is before the Supreme Court ever ruled, is that even the justices of the Supreme Court don't have the power to force DHS to arrest any given alien, don't have the ability to force them to deport anybody. So that was always sort of going to be the rock on which all of this broke. Again, even if the Supreme Court had given Texas everything that they wanted, probably not much would have changed. And we actually know that because during the period that the district court and Fifth Circuit orders were in effect, this is the lower court decisions that the lower court were part decisions, of this right. process that the Supreme Court finally decided on. Right, that had vacated the uh, Mayorkas guidelines, that DHS ICE more or less followed those guidelines in dismissing more than 90,000 cases in immigration court involving individuals who were removable from the United States. You know, the vacation of the Mayorkas guidelines didn't change that a bit. Right. And even if the justices had given Texas everything they did, it really wouldn't have made much difference. This one more goes to the power of the executive vis-a-vis the legislature when it comes to immigration. Case law going back 50, 70, you know, more than 100 years has made clear that when it comes to the rules involving immigration and the treatment of aliens in the United States, Congress makes those rules. The Supreme Court didn't overturn any of those statutes, but basically it's made it impossible for any outside body, including Congress, to sue in federal court to vindicate them. Instead, they've said, look, this is really up to the political branches. Congress has power. It has appropriations power. It has impeachment power. Solicitor General of the United States, basically Biden's attorney in the Supreme Court in this case, Elizabeth Prelogar, said that, you know, if Congress doesn't like what the administration's doing. They can, quote, make the executive's life difficult. It remains to be seen whether this Congress, you know, makes the executive's life difficult in order to actually get the laws that it's passed enforced. So essentially what they've said, Hans, is that the Congress can pass whatever law it wants. The administration can choose to enforce or not enforce, and there's nothing you can do about it in the courts. Nobody can sue. and you have to impeach people or something, use the power of the purse. Is that essentially what they're saying or not? No, I wouldn't go quite that far because there was language in there. Art, I know you saw this too, in which it may have been Kavanaugh who was talking about the fact that the issue in this case was lack of prosecution. And the situation would be different if, for example, the executive branch was providing benefits government benefits that they're not authorized to do. And that might change the calculus. But it was very interesting in the dissent, I thought, that Alito came up with this term. He said, the only thing that can be done about this is using the tools of interbranch warfare. Mm -hmm. And that's what Art was just talking about, that if Congress doesn't like what Biden and the administration are doing, they can withhold appropriations. They can impeach, for example, Alexander Mayorkas, actually something they should seriously look into and try to remove the head of DHS, too, for, for doing this. But that seems to be the only remedy given this, this decision. The interesting, I mean, it just occurred to me that you said it was an issue of lack of prosecution and the administration can't be, the executive can't be made to do that by the courts. Right. Whereas if they were providing a benefit, that would be a different story. But that assumes that not prosecuting, not following through on an immigration law for an illegal immigrant 
is different from a benefit. And yet, in de facto, it is in fact a benefit because they get to remain here and that's the most important benefit. Quite well, uh, Mark, I, I think you just put your finger on the biggest defect in the reasoning of the majority because mm-hmm. it is a benefit when the administration says, well, yeah, the law specifies you have to be removed, but we're not going to do it. That, Of course, that's a benefit. So this is for either one of you, but Art, you've been on the Hill a couple of times now, two uh, stints there. Is there something Congress can do in future legislation? So, I mean, they had these mandates, some of them from long ago, some of them passed in 96. Sometimes they add even more and more adjectives to them. It doesn't seem to do any good. Is there something else they can do? For instance, and correct me if I'm wrong here, either one of you, in environmental law, the law itself gives third parties the right to file suit you know, on behalf of the air or the water or however that works. Is there something like that that can be added to immigration law in the future to enable people, either citizens or specifically enable states or what have you, to go to the courts on matters like this? Yeah, and I'm sure that Hans is champing at the bit on this one, but I'm going to grab it first. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Congress can amend Section 242, which is the judicial review provision in the Immigration and Nationality Act, to give states standing in order to bring these suits. Now, again, it's going to have to be extremely clear in how it does it. And even then, this Supreme Court may say, well, you know, that really is not in line with our English system of justice that we followed since the glorious revolution. So Congress could do that. And interestingly enough, I actually wrote the provision that gives the Supreme Court the ability to actually enjoin actions like this. Part of the redressability issue that Justice Gorsuch was talking about was the fact they can't get an injunction. Section 242F of the Immigration and Nationality Act actually bars lower courts from enjoining actions, executive branch actions in this provision of the law. And that was done to stop the Ninth Circuit or the Northern District of California or states like that from interposing themselves to basically make immigration policy. Well, you know, now that, I didn't write that provision, by the way, that was in 1996. But, you know, the Supreme Court actually does have that injunctive power. And plainly, when Congress passed this provision, I didn't get to vote. I may have drafted. I didn't get get to vote on it. But, you know, the idea was that there would be cases like this in which it would be appropriate. The Supreme Court basically took a walk on that and made that a dead letter. But if the Congress were to amend Section 242 to actually give the state standing, that would at least, again, open the door even wider uh, for the states to bring suits like this. And it's important to put all of this into the idea of our federal scheme. When the states joined the union, they all gave up the ability to enforce their immigration laws. We know that from Arizona versus United States, a decision from back in 2012 in which Arizona attempted you know, some mild immigration enforcement got smacked down by the Supreme Court. Right. So, you know, the states are basically laid bare by Arizona versus United States. They're wholly dependent upon the federal government to enforce the law. We see that in Texas, you know, where Texas is attempting to dissuade people from entering the United States. But Texas doesn't have the ability to apprehend, detain, prosecute and remove anybody. So, you know, all those people who are clamoring for Governor Abbott to implement the invasion clause, you know, it's, I'm not really going to talk about the merits of that, but I'm just going to say at the end of the day, there's not much 
that Texas is going to be able to do to remove those individuals under our federal scheme. But Congress could give the states the ability to at least try to force some enforcement in the federal courts. Hans? Well, yeah, they could. I mean, look, there's all kinds of federal statutes where Congress has created a private right of action. Right. You know, probably the best example is the Voting Rights Act. The Voting Rights Act designates the U.S. Department of Justice, the Attorney General, as the enforcer of that law, but but it also provides that if DOJ doesn't act, private individuals and organizations can sue under it to enforce it. You just would have even to be, if they hadn't individually been affected by a violation of the Voting Rights Act. Well, organizations are given extremely broad leeway to come in. Okay. I mean, frankly, almost too much leeway right. to come right. in for that statute. And so Congress could do this, but I think as Art was saying, you have to be really careful because this could be used the wrong way, right. I think, to go after a, you know, if you had another administration kind of like the prior administration that actually wanted to enforce the law. That would open the can of worms. It would open for, the can of yeah. worms. So you'd have to... Right, Although, I mean, carefully. this is another point I brought up. Isn't it kind of asymmetrical here already? In other words, yes, that, <laughs> that it it's easy to file suit to stop enforcement of the immigration law. It's hard to use the courts to actually require enforcement of the immigration law. Right, right. But that's why, look, 20 years ago, you know, the most powerful member of the U.S. House was the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, which did the appropriations. Right. And back then, the House would use that power to go after executive departments and particular executive officials mm -hmm. by withholding specific money for their offices and things like that. And Congress just quit doing that. Right. And they've got to go back to that, doing that because that is one of their only powers, the power of the purse against the executive branch. And it seems to me that, and I was just a point I was going to bring up, is that if a immigration statute passes, and let's say in the next Congress, the same party is in the majority, but maybe they have a smaller majority. Right. The Republicans now have a four or five seat majority. That kind of gives the losing side in that statutory debate almost a kind of veto. In other words, right. they can a majority can pass a change in the law, but if it's very narrow, the losing side can, in effect, win anyway by just preventing, if they have a friendly administration, by preventing enforcement of the law, basically. Yeah, that's one of the big problems in this area. Is there something, as far as what Congress could do, is there something, an automatic mechanism to deny funding to whatever, you know, the Secretary of Homeland Security will receive no salary or his whole office will be cut off? if X, Y, and Z doesn't happen or something like that. You see what I mean? Or is that getting too micromanaging? Well, no, I, I think you could try to do that, whether the Supreme Court would ultimately say that that's too much of an interference with the executive branch's authority and therefore violates separation of powers. I don't know. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit more bullish on that idea than Hans is. Because again, you know, in, in Texas is a prime example of this. When it comes to the immigration debate, which is the third rail, I think the justices are just tired of getting pulled into all of these cases. Yeah, that was my sense too. This yeah. was kind of a, okay, we're sick of this. Just get, leave us alone. Get out of this courtroom. 
Right. You know, this is this is your mess. You've made it. You failed to respond to it. You, Congress, you, the executive branch, do something about it and leave us alone. I think that part of the problem is that a lot of Republicans or conservatives or even, you know, plain people who are concerned about the border put a little bit too much faith in the ability of the court to step in sort of deus ex ex machina to, you know, come in and make everything right. And in this, the court's shown they're not going to do that. And Mark, you bring up a very good point, as does Hans. If we were to craft some sort of state remedy, the next time that a Trump administration or any other administration attempted to limit immigration benefits, you're going to find judges out there who are going to step in, interpose, use that authority and say, well, look, of course we can, you know, undo that entirely. Right. There is one other point, Mark, that I wanted to bring up, and that is, and this is very narrow, please don't overread it, but in the list of exceptions that Justice Kavanaugh announced, which included the one that talks about benefits, there is the selective prosecution angle to this. If you go back to the Mayorkas guidelines, it has aggravating and mitigating factors that ICE officers should consider before taking enforcement action against a given alien. And one of those aggravating and mitigating factors is the reliance that that alien's family has on that individual as a provider. And, you know, yet another one of those factors is the availability of immigration relief for that individual. Now, of course, you know, the whole idea of having immigration courts is that, you know, you get put into proceedings and you're removable, you can apply for that form of relief. So that's sort of a ridiculous situation. But it's possible that a state or some group of plaintiffs could allege that they were selectively prosecuted under these provisions. Because look, you know, I, for some reason, I got put into proceedings just because I can go back home and make a good living in my country doesn't mean that, you know, I should be prosecuted and they shouldn't. Similarly, just because that person comes from a country that, you know, has a reprehensible human rights record and therefore may be eligible for asylum or withholding of removal, you know, they basically get a free pass, whereas I have to, you know, I'm in the dock in immigration court. So, you know, this is something that I need to think about a little bit more. If Hans had any thoughts on this, I'd love to hear it's them. It's kind of an interesting idea. In <laughs> yeah. other words, that yeah. the pro-borders people would find someone who was deported who wanted to complain that he was deported and other people weren't. Yeah, and yeah, the I, remedy would be that he would be let back into the country. Right. And I, I, Art, look, that's a very intriguing idea. And obviously, based on the language uh, in there of Kavanaugh, yeah, you could probably file a selective prosecution. The problem is, as, we, as all three of us know, is that the Biden administration is so reckless in this area that if they actually got a judgment against them for selective prosecution, rather than actually starting to pick up the aliens they're supposed to under the law, I think they would just decide, well, we're just not going to pick up anybody. anybody. Yeah, exactly. Of course. <laughs> and that goes to another one of the exceptions that Justice Kavanaugh talks about, which is, you know, the complete non-enforcement of the law whatsoever. I, what? I agree with you wholeheartedly, Hans. You know, be careful what you ask for. But we are more or less moving to a point at which there is no enforcement whatsoever. And the concurrence and the dissent both brought up, you know, well, does that mean that if they remove one person that they haven't completely abandoned immigration enforcement? That's what it sounds like. Yeah. So, you know, again, 
this really is up to the political branches. And I'm a little surprised thus far, and you know, I don't know whether Hans is as well, but that Congress hasn't actually taken more action. They've had hearings, and of course, they passed their own border bill. But they haven't really used that oversight power. And, you know, I'm an oversight guy. I started in oversight and I was on the oversight committee. I'm surprised that they haven't really used that oversight power to really lay the hammer down on the Biden administration and all of this stuff that's going on. Because we know that murderers and rapists and child sex offenders and, you know, individuals who have engaged in fraud and any other number of bad actions have basically benefited from this completely ludicrous scheme. Plus, in requiring ICE officers, and this is the way that it works, before they can even question an alien, they have to consider all of those aggravating and mitigating factors. Aggravating ones are how serious the crime is. Mitigating ones are things like the alien's age and health condition, and including whether they have a kid who works for the federal government, which, you know, is don't get me wrong, I work for the federal government, I, you know, really appreciate the uh, benefit, but it wastes the resources that Congress has apportioned to ICE to do all of that stuff because Congress has never said that they're supposed to engage in that time-consuming, resource-wasting analysis before ICE takes action. Yeah, I wanted uh, to get both of you to maybe expand a little bit. There's one more case we want to talk about, but expand a little bit on this idea of Congress abdicating its responsibilities. And this isn't unique to immigration. We've seen the same kind of thing in the war power over a number of decades. And that's something where Congress actually, I mean, the Republicans generally have been on the side of the executive. But I think it's, there's a similar thread here is that Congress is turning into what Gibbon in his decline and fall of the Roman Empire referred to about the Roman Senate, that it was becoming a venerable institution unconnected to the government of the republic you know is does congress really matter anymore and is part of the problem here beyond immigration that congress is just supine in the face of executive assertion well the answer to that unfortunately is is yes in many many cases i mean the biggest problem over the past few decades is congress has ceded and delegated huge amounts of power to the administrative agencies of the executive Right. Branch. And that is something they have to stop doing, that they have to take back. And part of that, by the way, is the fight in the courts to convince the Supreme Court to get rid of what they call the Chevron doctrine. Right. You know, the Chevron doctrine is just stupid, horrible. I should, I, I start to say stupid. I think it is stupid. This foolish case in which the Supreme Court said that, well, when it comes to interpreting the law, we're going to defer to what the executive agencies say. Right. Okay. That's just wrong. You know, they shouldn't be deferring to the executive branch. They, the court, should be saying what the law is and not deferring to the judgment of these agencies. But that, that is a problem. Look, they have held some hearings, as you all know, on these immigration issues. I think part of the problem is, is that the House is simply overwhelmed right. because the Biden administration is misbehaving in so many different areas. I mean, you, you name it from defense issues to environmental issues, to immigration issues. I mean, it's just one thing after another where they are acting in a way that they shouldn't be. And I, I think they're, they, they, they're just overwhelmed. And as long as the president's party has at least 41 seats in the Senate, yes. basically what it seems to amount to is he can do anything he feels like. In other words, yeah. that Congress no longer has any authority or ability to kind of rein in a rogue 
president. Right. We don't have that much time left. I wanted to talk about one other case. This was this was a case about whether the statute that says encouraging illegal immigration is illegal is in fact unconstitutional or not. And whichever, Art, you want to talk about that one? Or Hans, whoever wants to start the discussion on that, tell us the basics. I'll start real quickly. Uh, U.S. v. Hansen. And uh, this, this guy set up quite a fraud scheme. He convinced all these aliens that if they paid him a big sum of money, he would adopt them <laughs> as adults. These are all adults. These aren't children. He would adopt them, and that would automatically give them U.S. citizenship, which, of course, is a complete and total scam. Right. He was arrested. He made a lot of money doing this. But part of the charges were him doing exactly that, inducing and encouraging aliens to illegally enter the country. And he sued saying, this is unconstitutional under the First Amendment. Right. You, you can't punish me for encouraging and inducing aliens to do that. Fortunately, the Supreme Court said, no, that is not a First Amendment activity. Those words are very narrowly tied to the statute. You're trying to convince someone to do something illegal, and therefore, it's not a violation of the law, but it was a 6-3 decision, and we had Justice Jackson and the other two liberals say, oh, no, 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 this is protected by the First Amendment, which would have been a crazy result because it would have meant that the cartels, human traffickers, and others couldn't be prosecuted for inducing people to illegally come into the country. So the statute doesn't say, hey, you can't go on a podcast and say, I love illegal immigration. It has to be a concrete thing where you're saying, where you're inducing an actual person to actually illegally come to the United States. Exactly right. Interesting. Art, any thoughts on that one? Yeah, and it's important to note, as Hans alluded to, this is part of Section 274 of the Immigration and Nationality Act, which is the part that begins by saying you can't, you know, smuggle people into the United States. You can't transport them knowing that they've entered the United States illegally. And then it goes down this laundry list of things. And, you know, the encouragement and inducement, that's in the last clause of that laundry list of crimes. There's 70,000 words in the English language, but sometimes, you know, Congress struggles to find the right ones, and they settled on encouragement and inducement in this, but, you know, also provided guidance in the rest of the statute as to how it's supposed to be applied. So, you know, there could be some First Amendment case in which they'd say, now, you know, that's not sufficient. But generally, you know, we know what it means, and it certainly would cover this sort of conduct. And any reasonable person would know, as Hansen did, this isn't legal. So, you know, you know that what you're doing is illegal. You've been given notice. You haven't been whipsawed by the law, and you should be punished for it. One just quick point on this. I go back to Rome because I'm an ancient Rome geek. They adopted <laughs> adults all the time. Is it illegal to adopt adults? And if not, how is there not a loophole where you can get yourself adopted and then become the, you know, immediate relative of a U.S. citizen? Well, you might be able to do that under state laws, I guess, depending on the state, right. but you can't do that in order to get around federal immigration okay. laws. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, there are there are age restrictions in the INA with respect oh, I to see. such okay. activities. Okay, well, good. I'm glad, so, yeah, I mean, glad to hear that. That's why. Yeah. Um, we're wrapping up now, but and this is a case that hasn't been decided yet, but there is still the DACA case, right, that's going to be the Supreme Court at some, not, not in this term, because this term is over, but when are they likely to rule on whether DACA is actually legal or not? Any thoughts on that, Hans? No, well, the term's over with. So, right. uh, And as you know, 
the Supreme Court is totally unpredictable right. when it comes to their decision making. You know, they never announce ahead of time right. when they are going to release a decision. So it, it would be pure speculation. Art, I don't know if you have any kind of well, guess. When's on the next this. term, though, is what I mean. Oh, I the next term when, doesn't start until October. And then when of do this like year. when are, are is that when they start announcing rulings or no? That's when they start hearing arguments, right? Yeah, they can accept certiorari on a case at any point, right? But yeah, they don't hear the arguments until start hearing them until what is it? The first Tuesday of October. I can't remember right, right. what it is, but and I know I should because there was a movie with Joe Clayburgh and Walter Matthau called it, <laughs> and they will hear those cases throughout the term. And as we've seen, you know, with respect to Texas and, you know, with respect to the last Texas case, Supreme Court likes to leave these till the last day because they really are the hottest button issues. It's sort of a judicial ring and run. They drop it and then they, you know, go away for <laughs> right uh, away. three months and hope everybody yeah. forgets what happened. So let's say that if they were to rule on this at the end of this year or next year, we're talking 11 or 12 years after President Obama Correct. concocted DACA. Before there's a ruling on it, I mean, uh, you know, the people involved uh, could be grandparents by that point. Right? It's really- yeah, it's it's it, it's reminiscent to Bleak House, right, you know, yeah, Charles the, Dickens' the novel Dickens about book, the endless right. lawsuit. Yeah, but yeah, but Mark, Art- you know, this is one of those things where you know I think that various administrations have, including the Supreme Court, have attempted to put this judicial cloak on the DACA population, but really haven't done them a whole lot of favors. Even President Trump said, look, if the Supreme Court were to rule against the regions of the University of California and find that we can't terminate DACA, Congress is going to step in and they're going to protect this population of people. Thus far, and remember, Obama did this to protect the DACA population way back in 2012, from, you know, the the dangers of removal while the Supreme Court can consider various iterations of the DREAM Act. But what it's really done is it's relieved any pressure on the part of Congress to resolve this issue. And, you know, until some court somewhere rules one way or the other, and if Supreme Court says, look, he can't end DACA at all, those people are probably going to be in the limbo that they're in forever unless there's some massive comprehensive immigration reform package, read amnesty that, you know, drops the blanket on them all. Plus, it's important to remember that back in November, Chuck Schumer, the majority leader of the Senate, you know, gave a little soapbox speech outdoors, and outdoors in November is no place you want to be, where he said, you know, really what we want is protection for all 11 million aliens or however many are here. So you'll hear a lot of people, a lot of immigrants advocates say, you know, we really need to protect the DACA population. It's really just a stalking horse or a much larger amnesty. If Congress wanted to say, look, we're just going to give benefits to the DACA population tomorrow, they can. And frankly, until the Supreme Court, one way or another, makes some kind of decision, that's probably not going to happen. Plus, look, we we all know there's a lot of contentious issues in Washington, but if somebody asked me, what is the issue on which Republicans and Democrats are the most deeply divided, being on completely opposite sides of how to deal with it, immigration would be number one on my right, list. Yeah. And in a sense, that's one of the reasons so much of this gets dumped in the lap of the Supreme Court. That's right. Because Congress is so closely divided, because the public yeah. is so closely divided, that nothing actually gets done the way it's supposed to get done. 
Yeah, and I can actually quantify the point that uh, Hans made. AEI and the Survey Center on American Life issued a poll on June the 29th. Daniel Cox and Roy Teixeira talked about this where, you know, they said there is no issue on which Republicans and Democrats are more clearly divided than the environment and on illegal immigration and the impact of illegal immigration in the United States. So, you know, this polls in the 70s with Republican illegal immigration judges. It pulls below 20% as a serious issue for Democrats. And as long as Democrats control the executive branch, it's not going to be treated seriously. You know, if Republicans come in, you know, they'll treat it seriously. But if it's a Democratic Congress, they're going to use all those tools that, you know, Hans and I discussed, appropriations and oversight and threats of impeachment to basically impede any action. So Congress, you know, needs to get off the schneid on this, as we say in Baltimore, and step in and actually make something happen. And if they don't, well, bad on them. And unfortunately, regardless of the makeup of either the administration or Congress, this is going to end up in the courts over and over and over again, as we right. saw in the last administration, as we're seeing in this administration. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you, Hans von Spakovsky of the Heritage Foundation and Art Arthur from CIS in talking about the immigration-related decisions and their implications from the recently completed term of the Supreme Court. Thank you. And finally, while most of us this past weekend were thinking about hot dogs and fireworks, Florida's tough new immigration law went into effect on Saturday, July 1st. And this is prompting illegal immigrants to leave the state. There's been a lot of news coverage about this. The law would require E-Verify for all employers of 25 workers or more. Businesses that knowingly hire illegal immigrants would lose their business license, potentially fines for those who don't use the E-Verify system, and would make it a felony to use fake IDs to get a job. So it's interesting that this legislation actually focuses on the issues that actually draw illegal immigrants here, which is employment. It's got other aspects as well related to smuggling and what have you. It's a pretty broad-based piece of legislation, and it's the kind of thing a lot of other states should be looking at if they're serious about illegal immigration. And this comes on the wake of the governor of Florida, uh, Ron DeSantis, who's running for president, rolling out an immigration platform for his campaign. We wrote about that recently. Art Arthur on our staff did a blog post that we'll have linked in the show notes. And it also includes E-Verify, but also deals with a lot of the border-specific issues that Florida, because it doesn't have a land border with uh, Mexico, wouldn't deal with. The Florida legislature is dealing with the immigration issues that are directly confronted by the state of Florida. On a national scale, obviously, you're dealing with those kinds of issues, E-Verify and employment, but also specifically border issues. And so I would commend to listeners to look through Art Arthur's overview of the DeSantis campaign's immigration platform and also the coverage of the fallout or the reaction from Florida's new immigration law. because. The stories about illegal immigrants leaving Florida because they're worried about being caught out, basically, really does exemplify what attrition through enforcement is supposed to do. 
Florida isn't going around arresting all the illegal immigrants. I mean, some of them get arrested because they commit regular crimes, but generally speaking, that's just not Florida's job. But the states, any state, does have a role in making it difficult to live in their state as an illegal immigrant. And this legislation is another example, following on those set by other states, of how state governments can make their states less accommodating and less appealing to illegal immigrants to get them to move elsewhere. And also as a model, frankly, for the national approach to attrition through enforcement. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to Parsing Immigration Policy, and we hope to see you next week.